According to St. Mark. Jesus and his disciples came to the other side of the sea, to the territory of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, at once a man from the tombs who had an unclean spirit met him. The man had been dwelling among the tombs, and no one could restrain him any longer, even with a chain. In fact, he had frequently been bound with shackles and chains, but the chains had been pulled apart by him. The shackles smashed. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the hillsides, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. Catching sight of Jesus from a distance, he ran up and prostrated himself before him, crying out in a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. He had been saying to him, Unclean spirit, come out of the man. And he asked him, What is your name? He replied, Legion is my name. We are many. And he pleaded earnestly with him not to drive them away from that territory. Now, a large herd of swine was feeding there on the hillside, and they pleaded with him, Send us into the swine, let us enter them. And he let them. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine. The herd of about 2,000 rushed down a steep bank into the sea, where they were drowned. The swine herds ran away and reported the incident in the town throughout the countryside, and people came out to see what had happened. As they approached Jesus, they caught sight of the man who had been possessed by legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were seized with fear. Those who witnessed the incident explained to them what had happened to the possessed man and to the swine. Then they began to beg him to leave their district. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed pleaded to remain with him, but Jesus would not permit him, but told him instead, go home to your family and announce to them all that the Lord in his pity has done for you. Then the man went off and began to proclaim in the Decapolis what Jesus had done for him. And all were amazed. The Gospel of the Lord. I know I make this joke every time, but here in Iowa, we'd have begged him to leave the district too. You can't afford to lose that many hog. The word um, that comes to us, into, that comes into the English as unclean, is obviously a Hebrew word in origin that translated into Greek for the sake of the New Testament. It does not have the connotation that we associate with in English of, like, dirty. So we, we tend to think of sin, primarily in terms of purity. And we even use the language of ancient Jewish purity law to do this. But the ancient Jewish purity laws were not concerned with what we would think of mostly as hygiene. The word that comes to us as unclean 
originally means out of place. Something's off about it. It's not where it ought to be. And this makes a kind of sense when you begin to look, well, basically beyond hogs. I mean, first of all, hogs, especially like outside hogs that aren't kept in a confinement, are not naturally the most dirty animals. There's a lot dirtier animals on most farms, like say chickens, than, than the hogs. So it's, this isn't simply a, like, about the stench of manure. That's not what's going on here. If we look at the totality of the law and the things that are uh, accorded as clean or unclean, um, you know, you touch a dead body, you're rendered unclean. Um, it's not because the body's rotting. In fact, almost certainly the body's not rotting because that body's got to go into the ground before sundown. So that's, this isn't a concern mostly about disease transmission. What's wrong then with touching bodies? Bodies aren't meant to be dead. Bodies are meant to be alive. Death is out of place. doesn't belong here. Don't uh, boil a calf in its mother's milk. Cheeseburgers are good. They are. It's true. But it's unseemly. There's something sort of perverse about that action, which is the reason it's accorded unclean or out of place. This out of place, and this is important, notice... Uh, we hear a lot about what the possessed man can do, and we do hear that he's clothed in rags, but nobody says anything about how stinky he is. He's literally living in a cemetery, and nobody says he smells like rotting flesh. What's the problem? He's living in the city of the dead. He's as out of place as a person can be. And this is especially important to get at why the condemnation of David in, uh, in the passage from Samuel is so important. So, so the gospel writers later deliberately portray King Herod as a kind of anti-David. David, brave. Herod, cowardly, right? David does wrong, tries to hide it, ultimately repents. Herod dies in his sins, right? And in this case, very specifically, David, confronted by the prophet with his sinfulness, goes into full-on repentance mode and doesn't just repent himself, but makes the whole nation share in his fast and in his penitence. Herod murders the prophet out of place, unclean. The, the most fundamental out-of-placeness that we encounter in the Gospels really is in the persons who are possessed. And that is probably most clear here, though there are several other exorcism uh, pericopes that, that show this too. You could hear it. I think they might be the most terrifying words in all of Scripture. What is your name? My name is Legion. We are many. You're not supposed to be able to say that. Normal people don't talk about themselves in the plural. And even when a royal or a bishop or somebody in charge of something speaks in the, the, the second or the third, when they talk about themselves, first person, plural, uh, like as though they're many people, they're clearly acting on behalf of more than themselves. But this guy has become so disintegrated. He's literally out of place in his own body because he's been displaced by somebody else 
that the only way to fix him is to get rid of what's not him so that what remains is his truest self. And this is the reason that the Lord can command him. This is the only time in the Gospels that he puts it this way. Go home and tell your family all that the Lord in his pity has done for you. Not tell other people generically and not the more common messianic secret thing, don't tell nobody, but literally, go home. Tell the wife you abandoned all those years ago and the kids who haven't seen you forever. Tell your folks and your siblings and everybody else that you care about about what God has done for you. It's easy for me to talk about church at home. It's kind of like talking with my dad about the gas station. I don't know how often I talk about what God's done for me. It's kind of embarrassing. And they might not like it or agree. Or they might think I'm kind of a religious nut. Which, I mean, but it's still... So, right? Because it feels out of place. The problem with most of our sinfulness, I'm not going to say 100%, but for most of us, most of the time, at least as I've encountered it in my own sinful life and in the confessional, is not that the objects of our affection are wildly disordered, it's that they're all out of proportion to each other. We get fixed on something and it takes on too much importance in our lives. This is what happens with addictions and habitual sins. So there's one thing that may well be a good, but might not be for me or might not be for me right now, takes primary importance in my life. Gotta have that drink first, time I, first thing I get home or I'm not, I can't function, right? Or I gotta have my coffee first thing in the morning or I'm not able to talk properly. Or I, 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 I gotta have that phone call from my kid or I can't be sure they're okay and I don't really trust God enough to take care of my kid without a phone call. It doesn't matter what the bad habit is. It's out of whack. It's out of proportion. What God does is he restores proportionality. And over time, what grace does is it resets our default settings so that we're finally oriented in the right direction and in more or less the right order and more or less the right proportion. It's the reason Christianity is always sort of a religion for the long haul, right? It's not just about like didactically, like I read stuff out of a holy book and then I communicate it to you and I try and say it in a way that's winning and that you buy and then you go home now with this new stuff in your head. That's not the goal. If you thought that was the goal, I don't know, maybe the Buddhists across the street or something. That's not what we're trying to do. Knowledge is part of what saves us. You don't have to be Gnostic for that. We really do believe that knowledge of the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent is essential to salvation. But that knowledge is not primarily an intellectual exercise. It's an expression of the whole person. It involves our intellect, to be sure, and also our will, our heart, and our affections. And so over a long period of time, over years of training, years of practice, practicing Catholics, we develop those habits and skills and capacities necessary to grow in virtue, to choose rightly, to be ordered at least more or less in the right direction. Over time, and those of you that have been at this longer than the rest of us I know can attest, you do become more integrated, more whole, more yourself than ever you were before. 
You are not legion. You are just one. But that's enough. That's all he made us to be. And together, tonight, we are reintegrated and the demons cast out as we become one in him.